0: Alright, welcome back to another great episode of Dan on Top, a very special episode of Dan on Top. I'm your host, Dan Lukowitz, and today we're officially crossing the century mark. This is episode number 100. So thank you everyone for viewing, for supporting. It's been quite a ride and we're looking forward to the next 100. So without further ado, today we have with us the managing principal of Cross Mountain Capital, Michael Gilman. Michael, how you doing?
1: Doing great, Dan. Thanks for uh, having me on.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. So we've got a lot to talk about. Before we get into all of that, though, I want you to tell the viewers a little bit about yourself. So please share with us who is Michael Gilman.
1: So I'm a multifamily sponsor uh, here at Cross Mountain Capital. We're approaching 20 million uh, under management. I. Recently, this was launched uh, on the back of uh, my experience investing in real estate, uh, primarily for myself, and we um, recently started pooling capital to uh, take down larger deals. Historically, by training, I was uh, an attorney, started my career in investment banks, uh, supporting lending and trading businesses, uh, investing for myself in real estate throughout this whole time before uh, amassing a portfolio uh, where I was able to uh leave my W-2 and pursue uh, real estate full-time.
0: Awesome. Well, talk to us a little bit about that. That's something I'm always excited about, you know, because I I, I worked in corporate America, business development executive for Amazon. I left my W-2. I'm an entrepreneur, you know, private, you know, business owner, whatever you want to call it. And I love it. So I always love hearing other other people's stories. Tell us about that experience for you of of leaving that high-paying W-2 to invest in real estate full-time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of start with, you know, you know, why? Why real estate, and especially if I, if, you know, if I was in investment banking at the time, there's uh, you know s- several lucrative areas there. So you know, essentially, um, I started my career. This was uh, 2009, right after the financial crisis. I was at Bank of America, and one of the first uh, cases I worked on uh, were CDO litigation related um, mm-hmm. cl- uh, collateralized debt obligations. So I don't know if any of you guys recall, but I. Uh, in uh, 2008, Merrill Lynch collapsed, and uh, in their case, one of the big reasons was was CDOs. They, they sure. had a book full of CDOs, and overnight, uh, it turned from AAA paper uh, to you know, just complete collapse Shunk. in, yep. in valuations. Um, Same so way, Bank of America took over, and then there was just legacy litigation, investor, regulatory, um, and you know, looking at how. You know, something like this was touted to insurance companies, uh, some of the smartest people in the world, hedge funds, as AAA paper. And the math behind it, the theory, was so kind of erudite and difficult to understand. Uh, but it was, you know, everyone bought into it. And, yeah, this is AAA paper. You know, you're putting junk in, you know, junk bonds in, but out comes AAA paper. So it kind of got me, like, looking around as to, you know, what's actually a good investment, you know, and um at the time i was covering some trading desks as well so i had um one of the things i always was interested in was trading i uh day traded a lot and college and uh, actually uh, for a time wanted to be a trader so did a rotation on the trading desk there and you know just kind of bad news all around uh, at this time Uh, traders getting downsized technology replacing everyone and essentially the message was either you you have something to add from a technology programming perspective to code and, you know, and kind of the quant world or you have a book of business. Otherwise, you know, traders are going, are going the way of the dodo. So that was, um, you know, th- that didn't seem like a good path. Uh, and then I looked at, you know, came across real estate and that's when the light bulb went off. You know, here's, here, here's something where you can, uh, invest safely, conservatively. It, it was easy to value super easy. Um, you know someone with no financial background could, could learn how to do it right it's just a simple cash flow and so um and then the, when you combine that with the tax advantages it's just um it, it seemed to surpass any other asset class in, in terms of predictability mm-hmm. and it's ability really to generate wealth um so again at the time i i was you know supporting trading desks you know exchanging at the end of the day time for money but what i really wanted was to be my own boss and to, you know it, to, to have my own business and uh, if I want to take a day off or if it was a powder day and I wanted to go skiing then <laughs> you know I wanted the flexibility to do that. And so at the end of the day it came down to uh, wanting a passive income, wanting to be your own boss and the feeling that this was the best asset class out there. So I started investing um, primarily for cash flow very kind of safe conservative strategy, uh, higher cap rate markets, cash flow markets, um, and then uh, did that till I built up a nice cash flowing portfolio that could uh, replace my salary, and then moved on to more um, different types of strategies, more more growth centered markets where, where cap rates were low, but you you know you, you had to build in some speculation there in terms of future growth, and that's kind of where we are today. We we have two strategies. We do uh, one's a high cash flow in tertiary markets with some value add, and the other is. Um, more of a value add uh, in high growth markets. Uh, good example is Denver, where we just closed a, a 54 unit, uh, almost 10 million dollar deal.
0: Very nice, very nice. Well, so so being that you have the background as you know, former general counsel and Wall Street attorney, talk to us a little bit about securities and and, and maybe some topics that uh, investors who are are getting into securities um, or syndications need to be aware of.
1: Yeah, I think that. Um, the biggest way to trip up in, in this space is uh, you know, not, not not following the, you know, the rules around an unregistered offering, right? They, if you're trying to pool money um, if, for, for real estate, uh, more likely than not, it's going to be considered a, uh, a security, you're involved in securities activity. Uh, and so you, you, uh, the rule is that If you're doing an offering, it has to be registered or it needs an exemption from registration. Um, So registered, uh, so typically people will use an exemption from registration, uh, which is can be a 506B or 506C. So we can certainly get into that. But if, you know, on a rough level, the area where people would trip up the most is not understanding the distinction and not understanding how to market. Now, really the big, The big differentiator is in a 506C, you can generally market, you can generally solicit, but you can only take uh, accredited investors that have been verified as such by third parties. So it gives you tremendous flexibility, but there's, um, you know, some burdens for investors, even if they are accredited, they might not want to uh, provide a third party, uh, you know, statement to such. Um, And then it also, you cut out some non-accredited. But um, generally, if you're looking to advertise your offering, that, that's the path to go. Uh, 506B, you, you, you um, cannot have general solicitations. There's a limit on the number of non-accredited investors you can have, and you generally should have a pre-existing relationship uh, with your investors there. Um, but it's, it's a more flexible offering you know, for, for, for those who, who need to fund with, with friends and family. Because typically, you know, not, not all of them will be accredited.
0: Sure, sure. Now, talk to us a little bit about creative financing and, and using a hundred percent leverage to purchase.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what's great about uh, commercial lenders is they don't look at at you personally like you know a residential lender would. They, they don't they don't look at your debt to income. Typically, your, your credit score is not so important, um, and or in your your income. So what they're looking at is the property. Can the property support debt? They look at the, the debt service coverage ratio. And what's great is uh, they'll come, let's say you have a lender that comes with 75% to the table. If you have a nice cash flowing property, you know, you know can. they don't care where that other 25% comes from. So you can uh, lever it if you'd like And So common sources of that, perhaps the most common is a line of credit from somewhere. So it could be a line of credit from a property you own your primary residence secondary on some type of other asset that you've placed a line of credit on a business uh it could be a loan from friends and family uh which is another great way because they'll typically um unlike most lenders right who will require collateral if they're financing property uh they could get behind in a second position and not put a lien on the property uh typically your first position primary lender won't allow a lien so and that's why it's important uh if, if you're when looking at that that your source of capital is not is not required lien on the property um so that's just a couple examples uh you could use seller financing there's reasons the seller may want to carry the the balance um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: especially if, if it's getting him a higher price uh and then there's esoteric things like you can use repurchase options grant, granting them the right to repurchase which is a contractual right, which could also have some contractual value. Um, so, there. So that's essentially the three primary ways, I'd say, are levering through uh, some type of line of credit, uh, levering through a, a, a second position loan, or uh, some type of creative uh, construct, like, like an option to repurchase.
0: Talk to us a little bit about the capital stack in general, and some of the options when it comes to sourcing debt. Equity and maybe even a hybrid model of a preferred and convertible.
1: Yeah, so you know, in today's day and age, I'd say we're at the easiest part of the capital stack to source is the lender. It, 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 you know, the, the first position uh, debt, uh, and, and that's simply because that that's the uh, most protected part of the capital stack. It has the least risk. Uh, lenders collateralized by the property, and, and in most scenarios, it'd be tough to uh, think of one where where they're not made whole when they're you know, advancing 75 cents, uh, 75% leverage. Um, so the, you know, what happens is, and and, and this is uh, really helpful in a, if you're really trying to get, to put forth the most competitive bid possible or really trying to juice returns, is you really want to use as little uh, equity as possible in your capital stack, because at least uh, for us, equity is the most expensive source of capital, right? Where you're paying out a promote, a pref, so there's um, several other uh, types of, uh, you know, structures that, that can go behind the first position loan. So a, a typical one is PREF equity, which it has loan-like characteristics and has some equity characteristics. Uh, for example, it, it may have, uh, you know, a higher PREF that, than your equity is getting. But there, uh, it, it's at the same time, it's cheaper than your equity because it's not it, it's subject to a promote um and so let's say you've gotten yourself 75 percent leverage with your first position lender uh typically pref could take it up all the way to 85 uh perhaps even 90. Uh, so that that that'll really juice the returns in your model um convertible debt is is, uh, another example that um again is just ways to entice uh you know entice capital to your deal that may not be as expensive as trade equity. So with convertible uh, debt, right, it's, it, they they have the, the holder has the flexibility uh, there. They could have a more conservative investment uh, as the debt instrument, but if there comes a time and they see the um, uh, assets doing really well, it's in the money, they could convert at that strike price and, and be in the money and and, re, and it's all kind of equity upside from there. Um, so there's just examples of, of Different types of uh, structures that you can use to lever up uh, your, uh, you know, your, your offer, or or your, your your, you know, complete your capital stack if you don't have the equity or don't want to use the equity.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So, tell me on the other side of things, how do you go about sourcing your off-market deals? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, so we um, have been using a uh, third party, uh, a third party platform um, this, this last year. Um, it's called Offered, O F F E R D. So they combine uh, technology, technology-based database, kind of like uh, CoStar, you know, that overlays the property with every kind of information, point of information you might need, uh, estimated NOI, rent. Uh, value-add possible, likelihood of selling, which they derive from loan maturities, um, I think primarily how long the asset's been held. And they also combine that with uh, an off-market acquisition arm. So you kind of can cherry pick a list of assets and then they'll go out and get it. So the two primary ways, I guess, big picture to source off-market deals, right, is one, pay, pay for someone to do it, mm-hmm. or two, do it yourself, which actually we're starting to build out that capability uh in-house uh which is uh, fundamentally the process is get a list of buildings figure out who the owner is and call them right yeah it's, it's a numbers game it's a sales game it's um and there's an art to it because the toughest part is getting them to talk to you you know these guys these are people that are bombarded probably on a daily basis with with the same messaging will yeah will you sell will you sell um so the art is in getting them to open up, to trust you, to want to talk to you. And especially you want to talk to uh, someone that's looking to acquire off market versus on market yeah. because the first presumption you have to overcome is, oh, this guy is just kicking for a deal, you know, kicking around for a deal because, you know, most brokers are saying, and and probably rightfully so, that you'll get your best price on the open market. Um, so you really have to overcome that that presumption that you're you're just – shopping for some kind of deal or discount and articulate why an off-market transaction would be favorable to the seller and even more favorable, favorable than on-market one. so right the big one is no broker's fee mm-hmm. quick process um you know trusted name so you know who you're dealing with uh, so on and so forth so you know typically the stats are out of um the properties out there, maybe two or three percent will, will will transact in a given year, um, or actually, I think it's one to three. And so the typical um, hit rate w- you you would look for uh, in an off market search is, is that same percentage. So if you call a hundred people, um, you know, and, and one person responds, then, then that's good. That that's, you're kind of in line, right? Um, so it, again, it, it's tough. It's brutal, right? You you have to. Essentially, at least call a thousand people to get a good statistical sampling. Um, so yeah, it's uh, kind of brute force effort and uh, trying to get build that trust.
0: Sure, sure. Now, uh, talk to us about management. Maybe some of the pros and cons of self management, and and whether or not someone should develop a self management uh, infrastructure.
1: Yeah. So uh, in our case, we. Uh, self-manage in some tertiary markets, uh, Northern New England, and that was more out of necessity. Um, These are markets where there are not many property managers and the ones that are there are are charging exorbitant fees. Um, And we quickly found, uh, and on top of that, there's, you know, the industry is rife with conflicts, especially when when they're billing out their um, in-house, you know, maintenance workers, plumbers, electricians, what have you, on the property manager side, the incentive is, is, to, is to build them out because they're creating a markup on, on that um, income. They're, they're getting a markup. So we quickly realized to really succeed and really get the margins we want, we're going to have to do it ourselves. Um, so we, you know, we got the platform. We built up a team on the ground, and we did it. But um, and so the advantages are you have control over everything. You're you're tied into the process you, you know every little detail but the disadvantages are that it can be overwhelming and it, it may not it's not the highest and best use of your time um to, to contrast that in markets where we have properties like denver there, there's a ton of uh, property managers and so that level of competition has, has really elevated the game and so there we're able to use a property manager with reasonable fees and a reasonable cost structure so i'd say when looking at it it you know it's going to depend on where you are sure um in terms of you know there's companies out there or sponsors that that tout that in-house asset management that that they bring um and and they will advertise that that's one of their advantages and i've seen investors go both ways in terms of finding that as uh, a desirable aspect or not so it, it would be undesirable if the investor needs to can the property manager right in, in each operating agreement typically by vote the, the investors may, may have that right um but when you're when your sponsor is the property manager that could become problematic um at the same time it, if if you have a sponsor that's property manager and, and they're able to bring efficiencies of scale reduce costs so it. it might enhance returns and have a better managed property so it can really cut both ways to me it's really going to come down to the market um i personally don't want to supplement manage
0: i can definitely understand why well hey michael gilman managing principal of cross mountain capital thank you so much for joining us and providing so much value
1: thanks dan thanks for having me on
0: my pleasure i'm dan Lukowitz. this has been another great episode of dan on top we'll see you soon